Joshua 24, verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 25. It can be found on page 198 in the Pew Bible. Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Verse 11, and you went over the Jordan. And came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves 
that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said then, put away foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us in the book of Joshua, and we pray now that as we um, look at it and hear um, what it is that you uh, are doing with this people in Joshua, we see ourselves uh, in the story as well and what you're doing with your people, your church. Uh, Would you at this time graciously give us your spirit that we uh, would have eyes and ears to see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we come to a close here for this series uh, in Joshua, I want to ask you a question. What is it that defines us as a people? What defines us as a people? Uh, living, some of you know this, I lived in Alabama. Ada and I lived in Alabama for seven years. And um, when I asked that question, you know, reflecting on places that I've lived before, I can tell you exactly what defines a people uh, uh, of those who would call themselves Alabamians. And what defines the people from Alabama is what will take place on a football field next Saturday called the Iron Bowl. And this is no exaggeration, and I saw it firsthand. I am a witness um, that uh, life can be uh, in the pits. Life can be the worst it's ever been. But if your team wins this game, it sets the trajectory for the rest of the 364 days of the year. Like this is, in the same way, like life can be going great. You, you pick whatever, you know, goal, dream, aspiration you have for yourself and you met it. Your team can lose that game and then it sets the trajectory for the rest of your life as well. Uh, up until, well, for 364 days. Coaches with winning seasons lose their jobs based on the outcome of this game. Likewise, coaches with losing seasons hang on to their jobs based on the outcome of this game. I've never seen anything like it. What defines us as a people? What defines us as a people? Uh, we're not Fort Worthians, um, although we maybe like to claim that we are. We, we, love the, we love Fort Worth. We've been here for, we're in our fifth year. And it has been great sort of as an outsider to see what exactly uh, Fort Worthians want to be defined as or what defines them as a people. And you probably have a lot of uh, answers to that. But um, one of the things that I've noticed is, is clear that as we, you know, as we've lived here is that I think what most Fort Worthians would want uh, if they were to cross paths with somebody or if another Fort Worthian were to meet somebody in the airport, they'd want that person to know two things about people from Fort Worth. One, uh, we're happy to have you visit anytime. Right. You're welcome to come and visit our, our city. Uh, but two, they want to make sure that they knew that they're not from Dallas. Right. <laughs> That's for certain. What defines us as a people as much as being from Alabama or Fort Worth defines a people? What about Israel? What is it at this point at the end here 
um, as Joshua is essentially giving his farewell, right? We know that Joshua dies at the end of this book, and just as Moses died at the beginning of this book, and leadership will change place. What is it that defines God's people? And what I want us to see in this last chapter, uh, as we close the book of Joshua, is, is that what defines God's people here is grace. And that's not hope, it's not really a surprise, um, because it's actually what defines all of God's people for all eternity, is grace. That if Israel has aspirations of what others should think of them, it should be that we are a people defined by grace. Grace defines their past as God calls them to himself. Grace defines their present as he sustains them in the midst of their sin. But also grace defines their future as he is the one uh, who has put the terms of the covenant and the, and the fulfillment of these promises on himself, that he will get them to the finish, as it were. Uh, and all of this by his grace, and the same is true for you and for me. As Christians, if we were to ask the question, what defines us? I hope that if we're taking anything from Joshua, certainly the gospel of Joshua, is that what defines us is grace. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. So as you see there in your outline, I want, to see, want us to look at three things, how grace alone defines our past, our present, and our future by way of leaving this wonderful book. So let's look at that first one. Um, as God's people, grace defines our past. Chapter 24 starts out with Joshua gathering all the tribes at Shechem, summoning the leaders there, as you heard, uh, for what seems like a final renewal of the covenant before Joshua dies. But what is unique about this gathering is where it is happening. This is the same place that God called Abraham and promised him this land all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The wheel, as it were, has come full circle for God's people. And what this underscores for God's people and for us is that unless God calls a people unto himself, there is no God's people. As one commentator put, there is no God's people without God. That is, nothing happens unless God acts. Nothing happens unless God moves in the lives of his people. Nothing happens unless he speaks and creation comes bursting forth into view. Nothing happens unless God decides. And we see this in the history lesson that God is giving Israel beginning in verse 2. First, with the father of Israel, Father Abraham. Verse 2 says, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Interesting way to start one's history here. And the first thing we notice about Israel's past is that Abraham's parents worshipped other gods, which means that Abraham himself, what? Worshipped other gods, that he too was a pagan before God did what? Called him to himself. See, there is no God's people without God. Before God calls us, we are nothing but individuals serving and worshiping something else, just like Abraham was. And forget for a second what we think or what you think about Abraham today, but before God called him, his heart did not desire him. His heart did not desire God. He didn't think about God. He didn't look after God. He was lost. He was without hope. He was like any one of us before the Lord comes into their life. 
and opens their eyes and ears that they may hear and see something otherwise they could not. And what Joshua is reminding Israel from the start is that nothing happens unless God decides, unless he acts. And when he decides, when God decides to act on behalf of of a people who worshiped other gods like Abraham and his family, that is grace. That is grace. It is his unmerited favor towards them. For Abraham, grace defines his past. And because that's true of Abraham, it is true of all of God's people. Verse 3 continues this reality by the text saying, I gave him Isaac. Well, who is Isaac? Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were 190 when they gave birth to Isaac. It was a, a miracle, if you recall the story. In fact, when God told them that they would have a child, they, all, they both laughed at him. They laughed at God. Um, because they, just their bodies were the age where they, there was, it was impossible. They were way past the childbearing ages. And of course, that's what the word Isaac means. It means laughter. This was their response. But for Abraham and Sarah, it wasn't going to happen, but God made a promise to them and they hung on to that promise. And God gave them Isaac. That's the history. Remember this. But he also, we had to read this. He gave us Isaac. (laughs) And from Isaac, Jacob, and so the promises continue until God gives us another son that we we, we heard in John 3.16 as the gospel writes it. For God so loved the world that he gave. There it is again. Gave his only son. Grace defines our past. By verse 5, we read, and I sent Moses and Aaron. And what did they do? Well, they delivered God's people from slavery. In other words, God is saying, remember, I did not forget about you here, right? I did not not forget about my promises. Instead, I sent you one who would deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of the bonds of slavery. But Aaron, the priest, he would show us that, that God was in the business of delivering his people from something, some other type of slavery than the bonds and the chains of, of physical slavery. He was going to deliver us from the bonds and the slavery of our sin, which is ultimately what is pictured there in the Exodus story. And it's again, God saying, I am not just the God who calls a people to himself by name. I am the God who forgives sin, who heals, who redeems a people where they no longer are chained to the desires of their heart. That's who I am. And guilty before the Lord God, they're no longer guilty, but are set free by faith alone from those chains to what? Become a different people. To become a peculiar people. To become a holy people. A kingdom of priests. To become God's people. We could go on as the rest of chapter 24 does. But the point is clear. God is the one who creates a people. Where there is no people, he creates one. And he does this by his grace alone. God is reminding Israel and its leaders here that there is no God's people without God first breaking into the scene and calling them out of the worship of foreign gods to worship the one and true God to worship himself. And the same is true for you and for me. This history is not just Israel's history. It is our history. If you claim the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. 
This is how grace defines our past. Let us see then how grace defines our present there, uh, our second point. Pronouns are always important to take note of in narratives as you read along. And by verse 7, that personal pronoun changes to y'all. God is now reminding the current generation of what they have seen and what God has done for them personally. He says, if you look there uh, in verse 7, And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. I love what one commentary says about that. That's the shortest summary of the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy ever. I would not get away with that in my entrance exam. Um, Yeah. But it goes on. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites. Who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. And I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. What is the text saying? It is reminding the current generation. Who is gathered around listening to this. As it were. That not only does grace define their past. But grace is what defines their present too. They all. uh, that, That all they have done. And are doing. Is being sustained. By the daily grace of God to his people. For Israel, this daily sustaining was more literal, uh, had a more literal feel to it, right? right? When they were children in the wilderness, they actually saw and tasted and, and lived on the manna that fell from heaven for 40 years. Right? When you go back and look at that story as well, we notice that their clothes mysteriously were not worn out. Their shoes did not wear away. That was the Lord's grace to them in that day, sustaining them in the present. And now that they are in the land, though the conquest is not complete, God is reminding them again that this same grace that has sustained you then will sustain you today. Do not forget this. Look at verse 12. For it was by your sword, excuse me, it was not by your sword and not by your bow. I gave you a land of which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. If I'm Israel, that is a humbling reminder because it is saying that all I have done is really received. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of grace to begin with that all that we can do is receive it? Because as we look back at the text, who is delivering? Who's, the act, who's doing the action here? Who is giving? Who is doing all these things? Who is sustaining? It is the Lord. I gave them into your hand, he reminds them. Right? I destroyed them before you. I gave you the land which you had not labored in cities you had not built. In other words, God is saying, Israel, don't forget why you are here. Don't let your self-righteousness say, we did this. We built this nation. We conquered this land. It was a gift. It was a gift based on a promise that God made to you when you were off in the desert, huddled around the fire, worshiping stones. Let that humble you. I think remember the words that Moses uh, wrote in Deuteronomy 9 that we have said many times this series. Do not say in your heart, Israel, after the Lord, your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Know, therefore, 
that the Lord your God has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Israel, you have brought your you you have not brought yourselves here. God has brought you here. Don't forget this. Because if you do, and this is the warning to Israel, it's the warning to us, you will forget who sustains you this very second. You will stop depending daily on the Lord. Don't forget who sustains us this very second. But isn't that as well an encouragement to us this morning? To either hear that for the thousandth time, to remember it again, or maybe even hear it for the first time, that it is God who sustains us this very second, to be reminded that in this very moment, God's grace is with us in Jesus Christ. Because what this means, among other things, is that he is with you. And is not that been another major theme and point of this entire book? But that we need to hear that as well. He is with us. He is involved. He is aware of your fears. He is aware of your burdens. He's aware of your worries, your anxieties, your troubles, your needs. Right this second. Which also means that there is no one who knows you better than he does. Not a spouse, not a sibling, not a best friend. He knows you better than anyone. Let that be encouragement for us this day. That his sustaining power means that he is in the midst of all that we are going through. And while we might want answers at times, and while we might want solutions, right? What might be best for us to know is that he is right there with us, giving us his grace himself through the body and blood that he sacrificed for us on our behalf so that we could be his people today. And one of the ways that we are reminded that he is with us, that we, are rem- that we are reminded of his sustaining love for us this very day is not from the manna that falls from the sky, but it is from a different meal right? that that pointed to. A meal of bread and a cup that is broken right, and poured out for each of us. That we would come every week to feast on that promise that this is truly what sustains me as God's people. Grace doesn't just define your past. It defines your present as well. He is with you. What is also true for us that was true for Israel in this text, though, is that their story as God's people was still being written. It was not over. Neither is ours. It is not done. And this gets to the last point. Grace defines our future. So after we see how God defines our past, or excuse me, how grace defines our past and how grace also defines our present, verse 14 tells God's people, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in those lands you dwell? Who will it be? Choose. And then Joshua, as the leader, plants his flag, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then verse 16 and 18 is the people's response. This is a bit of a ceremony if you picked up on that. And here's what they say. Yes, we too will serve the Lord. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. 
And then we get verse 19. And Joshua says something here that maybe it caught your ear too as you heard it read. Uh, but it's not something we expect. He says this, you are not able to serve the Lord. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You know, you're sort of maybe caught up in the call and the response and you're getting fired up, right? You're making your choice here that, that I am going to plant my flag as well with Joshua to be a part and a member of God's people. But then Joshua comes over the top, sort of this Debbie Downer moment. You can't serve God. He will not forgive your transgressions. And I can imagine somebody in the congregation kind of thinking he won't. Uh, well, I, was, I can't serve him. I was, I was going to give it my best shot, but okay. Well, you know, what is Joshua saying here? Um, first, I just, this is not an absolute statement. Joshua is not saying that forgiveness is no longer available. But I think as you hear it in full, you recognize what he's doing. He is calling for sobriety. Among God's people, make your choice, but know who you are dealing with. Joshua, as Dr. J. Sklar writes, is confronting Israel with the seriousness of the solemn promise it has just uttered. In other words, if Israel is to truly serve the Lord alone, that is to follow after and obey the Lord God, to be his people only, then it will mean that she herself must be holy must be set apart and that she must not incite the Lord's jealousy by worshiping any other God aside from him. And as we hear that, and as we sit under the weight of that, perhaps the question that comes to mind is how, how are they going to do that? How, how are we going to do that? And not just for today, today's hard enough. What about the rest of my life? What about the future here? What a monumental task because, and I, I mean, I don't know if you caught this or noticed this, but look at verse 23 with me. And I'm, I'm saying this personally speaking, this might be the most encouraging verse in the entire Bible. But did you notice it? He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Put away the foreign gods that are among you? Here we are at the end of Joshua. A generation that watched their parents die in the wilderness because of their stubborn hearts. They wanted to worship other things. A generation that saw manna stop falling from the sky as an indication that they had finally arrived in the land God had promised them. A generation that saw God part the Jordan River. A generation that saw uh, God uh, defeat cities like Jericho and Ai. A God that also dealt uh, in judgment with not just the people of the land, but of his own people like Achan, who, who kept possessions that belonged to the Lord, right? They saw all of this. And much more, right? They they were given their, we skipped over this, but they, they were given their land. I mean, the implications, the gift of that. They were given all of these things, and here they are after all that. And the text says they still have their foreign gods with them. They have not let go. How is that possible? This has to be some mistake. But it's not. And oh man, what a picture. What a picture of grace 
that Joshua leaves us. It speaks of the patience of God with his people as they what? As they learn to trust him. And as they continue to fail to be his people, but by his grace, they will be his people. Is what he is saying to them. And the same is true for you and for me. It shows us that grace doesn't just define our past or our present, but grace must define our future too. We need something to run ahead, as it were, right? To cover the sins God knows we will commit in the future. And for that to happen is only by his grace as well. Uh, As an ordained minister, I take this vow, as do all ordained ministers, It says, do you, Ryan, engage to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as a Christian and an administrator of the gospel while personal, whether personal or relational, private or public, and to endeavor to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before the flock of which God shall make you overseer by the grace of God alone. Do you? All right. And... Talk to any pastor, minister worth his salt, right? Wait. What's so hard about that? Just go do it. If you talk to any pastor who recognizes the burden of that, there's only one way anybody is foolish enough to make a vow like that. It's that last line. By the grace of God. Daryl Ralph Davis says this about that very thing in his commentary. I would not touch that vow with a proverbial 10-foot pole. It asks too much of a proud, angry, lustful, covetous man. I affirm it only because there is that clause, by the grace of God. We are never saved by grace and then left to ourselves to make it the rest of the way home. That is the good news. And never forget that. And if you want to be thankful for something this Thursday, right? Let's be thankful for that. That God does not call us by his grace to be his his people. Then sustain us in the present, right? Only to leave us to make it home by ourselves. His grace never leaves his people. We will fail to be God's people, but that will never disqualify us from being his people because grace is our history. It sustains us today, but grace is also how we get home in the end. And why? Because while you and I have and will fail to keep this vow, this covenant with this God, thankfully someone else has not failed. Thankfully, somebody else has kept this vow and it's Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God that runs behind and ahead and meets us in all the places that we have and will fail. All the places that we fail to trust him, to obey, to be the people he has called us to be. Jesus meets us in in those places where we still cling to our idols this very day. Why? Because his blood has paid for it. And what begins to happen as that reality sinks in, as that grace is made more real to you, you actually what? Begin to what? Put away the foreign gods among you. It is the only way.
you began to trust the one who gave his life for you. While you were lost, while you were dead in your trespasses, this is what he did for you. That is grace and is the only thing that, that, that has the power, right? To exchange what we think is beautiful and believable and the things of this world, but exchange it for Jesus, the ultimate of those things for us. This is how grace defines our future and knowing that actually gives us the courage and the freedom to be the people marked by grace, defined by grace that he intends for us to be. If grace does not define you as a Christian this morning, what is, what does? What do you want to be known as? What do you want people to think when they look at you? As God's people, what is it? It'll be nothing other than the grace that we get because of Jesus and from Jesus and what he gives us because of his precious blood and his body, what he has done for us on the cross. So we've seen how grace defines us as God's people, both our past, our present, and our future. As the book of Joshua comes to a close, we notice there that Joshua dies too. As I said earlier, this is how the book begins with Moses dying. And I love the transition of leaders because it does what? It prepares us for Jesus. Because it tells us that Moses was not good enough. Someone else is going to have to come. Joshua tells us and tells Israel, Joshua is not enough. As good as Joshua was, by the way, I don't know that it gets much better. You know, David, I mean, of course, would be one of those people. But like Joshua's pretty good. Um, I don't want to you know, be compared to him. But as good as he is, he is not good enough. And let that be encouraging to you. Right? The standard is not Joshua. Standard wasn't Moses. The standard is the one to come who is Jesus to come and to fulfill the promise of being a blessing to the nations, of putting an end to sin finally, of putting an end to death finally, and of securing for us an inheritance for all eternity with our God as his people. It will be Jesus, God in the flesh, that will be how we make it home in the end. Some of you might have heard of Team Hoyt. And if you haven't, I would love for you to Google this sometime this week. H-O-Y-T. And uh, Team Hoyt is a father-son duo, Richard and Richard Jr., who have run and finished numerous long-distance endurance runs like Ironman and marathons. <clears throat> In 2008, they were both inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame. Um, something that will probably never happen to me. <laughs> As of March 2016, the Hoyts had completed a thousand of these runs, including 72 marathons, <clears throat> six Ironman triathlons. They ran the Boston Marathon 32 times. And in 1992, as if this wasn't enough, they ran and biked across the United States. Some of you won't remember this. Um, the whole 3,735 miles in 45 days. And as you think about that, you may be thinking, what am I doing with my life? Um, but the team began this in 1977 when the son asked his father if they could run a race together to benefit this lacrosse player uh, at his school who had become paralyzed. And Richard Jr., the son, wanted to prove that life right, went on no matter, no matter disability. And so a thousand high-level endurance runs later, I think they have made their point. But what makes the story of Team Hoyt so amazing, and some of you might know this, is that Richard Jr., the son, he can't walk. He can't even use his legs, his arms. He's, he's paralyzed. 
Um, he was born with cerebral, cerebral palsy and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He has little to no use of his body. And you ask, well, then how does he finish these races? And the way he finishes these races is his father pushes him the entire time. You got to see this if you haven't seen it. They start and they finish every single race together. It's, in, it's amazing. Without his father, Rick Jr. cannot make it to the starting line, let alone the finish. In reading about their story, the father was never a runner, and all this started for him at age 36. <laughs> you know, um, it's an incredible story. Friends, is there a better picture of what defines us as Christians than Team Hoyt? Is there a better picture of what defines us here? That this is how Christians both start and how we will also finish. How we will get home by the strength and the ability of another. In the grace of Jesus without whom there is no God's people. We aren't here. Look, be thankful this week for your turkey. Be thankful this week for your mashed potatoes. Be thankful for all the things that you're going to come in contact with. But may we be thankful for the grace of God, both past, present, and future, that makes us his people. For it is by Jesus and him alone that we are sustained this day. But it is also by him and because of him that we will make it home in the end. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Joshua and its complexity. How can we ever uh, know the depths of who you are? And that we get these stories of how you are acting in and amongst uh, a broken and sinful people. And we have hope, uh, not only because it means that you could too possibly uh, work and, 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 and move in our lives, a broken and sinful people, but because you have actually provided the one solution for this people to be your people, and that is your son, Jesus Would we hold fast to him? Would we hold fast to the grace that he gives us in himself? And would we look to that grace, both past, present, but also future, for how we will make it home as well, to be with you, to see you face to face when that day comes. We pray this all for your glory alone. Amen.